CSN International presents To Every Man an Answer, the live apologetics program that equips you to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. If you have a Bible question or a question on the Christian faith, you can call us at 1 888 827 5276. Again, that's 1 888 Ask CSN. Let's get things started. Here's today's host, Mike Kessler. Well, hello there, everybody, and welcome to the Tuesday edition of To Every Man and Answer. I'm John Randall, sitting in for Pastor Mike today here on the program, and joining me today is our good friend, Pastor Jeff Wickwire from Turning Point Church in Fort Worth, Texas. So glad to have him on the program. And as we take these questions, maybe you have a question about the Christian faith, about the Bible. Is is what we read actually true? Is some of the stuff that's being preached from the pulpit, can that be found in Scripture? It's a great opportunity for you to ask these questions. You can call us here at 8888-ASK-CSN. Again, that's 8888-ASK-CSN. Pastor Jeff, it's such a blessing to have you here in your program, Hardwired. We love it here on uh, CSN. How are you doing? Happy New Year, my friend. Hey, you too, John. Good to be with you. Looking forward to a great show today. I think I just have a feeling there's some a lot of folks out there with some great questions and want to encourage them to call in, 8888-ASK-CSN, and we will get to those questions as as well as we possibly can. We don't know everything, that's for sure. But we will do our best to answer your question. And, you know, I like to say, John, there's, there's not a bad question. You know, if if you you got a question about the Bible and it's just never made sense and it'll help you to clear the cobwebs out, then uh, no question is a bad one. Call and ask it, and we will do our best. But it's good here, John. Now, we're about to get uh, a part of this cold front moving across America. Um, I know many places. Matter of fact, uh, Mike Kessler was... Uh, stop from traveling today because of snow, a blizzard. And uh, I've got a daughter-in-law who couldn't get out of her apartment in Kansas City because it's uh, like a blizzard. Mm. And here, we're they're calling next week for 29 for a high and 7 degrees for a low. Wow. So we're, we're, we're about to get winter. That uh, is and that's fine with me. You know, I, I was born in New York. I'm I'm fine with it. But you know, uh, other than yeah. that, go ahead, John. Well, I was just going to say, um, you know, as you think about this new year beginning, you know, um, Jeff, there's a lot of people that have a lot of questions. Uh, they're seeing things on the horizon. You know, the way you're observing, hey, there's a storm coming. Some people are looking at 2024 and they're thinking there's a storm coming. What are some of the things that uh, have come up perhaps in your fellowship? In a moment, we're going to go to the phones here, but just want to get your take on what, what are some of the things that are concerns on on the minds of your people, things that you're aware of? Uh, in light of what's on the horizon for us? Well, I know that um, a couple of real concerns, you know, we're watching our nation. Let's face it. If you, if you got an IQ above room temperature, you got to see it, that um, the the nation is spiraling down, particularly on the moral plane. Uh, You know, we're looking at uh, this, this whole transgender Mm -hmm. issue, uh, little children being indoctrinated in a transgenderism and, uh, deciding, you know, little boys deciding that they're really girls and then being told by authority figures that that's, hey, Johnny, that's, that's fine, Johnny. If that's what you think, then we will start calling you she. And there's this, just this incredible moral, uh, dumbing down and really spiral into perversion. Uh, perversion is being normalized and what is normal is being called perverted. So we're looking at Isaiah's prophecy. 
where uh, evil is being called good. Good is being called evil. Up is down. Down is up. Light is dark. Dark is light. And I think anybody just just studying, you know, just studying the, the national landscape is thinking, what in the world is happening to our country? So there's that. There's also all these rumblings of war around the world. They're, they're saying the Middle East could at any minute uh, explode into a full-scale Middle Eastern war that could easily spill out into other countries. There's that. Of course, Jesus did warn us uh, that there would be wars and rumors of wars before his return and throughout, you know, throughout uh, history. And uh, that's been absolutely true. But now they're everywhere. You, you hear about it every day. So things like that. Uh, I, I, there's a sense, John, that, um, you know, post-COVID that, that seemed to leave our country in a sort of a, a mental funk, you know, just, um, you know, just the sense of being in limbo and sort of being displaced and, you know, not knowing quite how to land after being secluded uh, for all that time. Uh, and so it, it just left our country in a, in a place where I think there's just this malaise out there. And uh, so I don't know about you as a pastor, but me as a pastor, I'm having just to really encourage the, the folks not to give in to spiritual slumber, um, you know, to fight it, to uh, stir up the gift of God that's within you, uh, rekindle the flame. Uh, don't let uh, these various things take you down and bring you to a place of lukewarmness, but, you know, uh, burn brighter than ever, mm -hmm. uh, throw some fresh logs on the spiritual fireplace, and don't let yourself be carried along by this very troubled culture. And so I think that's uh, that's a lot of it right there, John. Yeah, it's a great word of encouragement. I really appreciate you sharing that with us, Jeff. Keeping our eyes looking toward the skies, keeping our eyes on Jesus, keeping our eyes in the Word of God and uh, finding encouragement there. You know, today we're going to go to the phones and we're going to start with Grace in Texas. Grace, welcome to the program. So glad to have you here on To Every Man and Answer. Hello. Hi, Grace. How are you? Hi, I'm good. My uh, my question comes from First Samuel, mm -hmm. um, chapter thirty-one, right? And it's about how King Saul um, is not with the Israelites anymore. Um, um, but I've kind of heard like some things about how he dies, and I'm like, oh wait, so did someone come from the battle and kill him? Was he shot mm -hmm. by arrows? Did he take his own life? Did his servant kill him? Or is like there a lie between that? Yeah, that's a really good question. Grace, can I ask you, first of all, how old are you? 11. Wow. You mm -hmm. are a student of the Bible at 11. I really appreciate your question. And it's a really good question. You know, Pastor Jeff, when you look at the end of 1 Samuel, you get a, an account of how it was that King Saul and his sons died on Mount Gilboa. And it seems like that's the end of the record, but you kind of have to keep reading into Second Samuel. What did happen to Saul? Well, of course, there's the account of uh, when he was really just in his final day or two, he went to the witch of Endor. Having banned witches from the country of Israel, he went and found one because God was no longer talking to him. So he asked the witch of Endor to call up Samuel, who had... Uh, died and gone on to be with the Lord. And this is one of those rare instances in the Bible, uh, as you know, John, where 
um, it seems by, for all intents and purposes, that uh, as the witch apparently did attempt to do this, Samuel did show up. Now, it might be a dispute as to whether it was the witch that called him up or God looked at the situation and simply sent Samuel, but there's really no getting around that he appeared to Saul. And um, because he said, why have you troubled me? Why have you caused me to come from my place of rest? And so on and so forth. So um, he predicts there that Saul will be killed the next day. And this is his final night on the earth. And the next day, Saul and Jonathan and uh, his sons uh, are uh, in a battle with the Philistines. And the Bible says the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons. They killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua, and uh, who were all Saul's sons. Now, the really tragic part is Saul saw what was going on. He realized, you know, the jig is up. We're defeated. There's no getting out of this. So he asked his armor bearer to take his life, and his armor bearer was afraid to do that. So it says in verse 4, Saul took a sword and fell on it. In other words, Saul tragically committed suicide. So that was the end of Saul. It's a tragic end to a tragic king. He started right, ended wrong. He started strong, ended weak. And he started uh, with a faith in God and ended up so confused that he wasn't even seeking God anymore, but turned to witchcraft. So he's a cautionary tale for all of us that, you know, you, you can start right, but if you don't make every endeavor every day to seek God, get into his word, uh, very humbly walk with him, any of us can go wrong. We can go off. We can go sideways, get into real trouble. So cautionary t- tale Saul is and a very, very tragic ending. But that is, Grace, how Saul died. So there you have it, Grace. You know, Saul ended up, you know, getting wounded in battle, but he wasn't completely dead yet. And so if you keep reading, as was mentioned, you go into Second Samuel chapter 1, David gets a report from a man that comes in and says to him, uh, tells him the whole story. This is Second Samuel in chapter 1, and you go down to, to verse 9, and he begins to tell the story how that he found Saul on the battlefield. Actually, if you look at verse 8, and he asked him, who are you? And he said, I'm an Amalekite. Now, that's important too, Pastor Jeff, because you remember the Lord had told Saul years earlier to get rid of the Amalekites, yeah. and he didn't. So guess what happened, Grace? At the very end, the Amalekite that he didn't deal with, well, it came back to deal with him. So yes, he was wounded in battle, according to First Samuel, but it seems that he didn't quite die. There was still life left within him. And so he asked this other person to, well, to finish him off. And there he he passed away. As Pastor Jeff said, such a tragic thing. And Saul would say about his own life, I've played the fool and erred exceedingly. And so, you know, sometimes you look at people in the Bible and you realize what we should do. And other times you look at people and think, oh, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to follow that example. Does that answer your question for you, Grace? Yes, thank you. You are very welcome. I'm so glad you called. You call anytime. In fact, if you want to stay on the line, we'd love to send you out some materials that I think you'll find encouraging. And I'm I'm so excited and blessed that you're a Bible student. And uh, you call again. All right, Grace? Okay, thank you. Okay, God bless you. We'll see you. What Let's you go, sweetheart? That oh was encouraging. Goodness, that 11 years old, studying the word, asking. May God. her tribe increase. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> thank you so much. Let's go to Maria. 
out in, well, Bakersfield, California. That's awesome. Great to have you here. Maria, how can we help you today? Um, well, now Grace gave me a second question. Um, if, <laughs> right. King, if King Saul fell on the sword, he committed suicide. Do, do we believe he's in heaven? That's a good question for Pastor yeah. Jeff. Pastor Jeff, you know, he fell on his sword. He didn't die yeah. completely. And then he asked another person to finish off what uh, what remained of his life. What's your thoughts on that? You know, I, I've had that question many times, and I've asked myself that question. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things, since the Bible doesn't really flat out tell us, we're, we're left only to speculate, and we can't speak authoritatively to it. I don't know. Uh, you know, earlier in his life, he had prophesied. He had he had uh, been chosen by God. Um, he he seemed to be one who sought God in his younger days. He -hmm. was humble when he started out. And really, he's one of these examples, John, where uh, power seems to have corrupted him to a level. Because uh, once he got that power, he got full of pride. He got very resistant to uh, any kind of correction. And, you know, even early on as well, he really refused to obey uh, directives from God. That's what got him initially in trouble. You know, take out all the Amalekites. Well, as you mentioned, he didn't do it. Uh, he, he did not take them all out and they, it came back to haunt him and not just him, but the Israeli people for many centuries to come. So, uh, only God knows whether Saul is there. I would like to think God had mercy because of the way he began, but I simply don't know. Yeah, the one insight that I would say that just, you know, you think about Saul, you mentioned it earlier when Saul goes and he confronts or actually requests the, um, of, of the witch at Endor to bring up Samuel and Samuel gives him this word and, and says, he says to him, this is first Samuel chapter 28. And again, I don't think we could be definitive on this other than it says in verse 19, Samuel said to him, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. So wherever Samuel was, he yeah. says, Saul, you're going to be with me tomorrow. So um, that's that's a good question to ask. Yeah. Heaven will reveal it. And um, so we'll see. But Maria, you had another question, and it had to do with the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. Well, my original question um, that I wondered about, okay, we, throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, different pharaohs have tried to stop the Jewish line, I guess. You know, uh, they were trying to... Um, I guess Satan was using these pharaohs to keep the Messiah from being born. But then in the New Testament, we, we know that Jesus came. So then why did, why does it continue? Why is Hitler, why did Hitler try to exterminate the Jews? Why did, um, why is war going on now? Are they, the Messiah has already been, been born. What could be the reason for their continue, continuing to want to stop? Yeah, the anti-Semitism, the hatred that we see on college campuses and major cities. Um, why all this animosity toward the Jewish people? Why, why is this, Pastor Jeff, that we see this continued hatred for this group of people that lives in a geographical location that is no bigger than the state of New Jersey? Why, why yeah. is there so much hatred for these people? I really think it goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15 when uh, Adam had fallen, Eve had fallen, and God is divvying out uh, different judgments to the three that were involved, Adam, Eve, and the devil. He says to the devil in Genesis 3.15, which I like to call the John 3.16 of the Old Testament, 
But God says to Satan, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will bruise your head, you will bruise his heel. And the word enmity means extreme hatred, uh, warfare, friction, hostility. It's a very, very strong word. Uh, so God predicts, God says that between the woman, the seed of the woman, and uh, the devil, there's going to be this enmity, this hostility. Well, then you track down uh, through uh, the Bible to Genesis 12, when the call of Abram takes place, and God picks the, the head of the Jewish race as Abram, who became Abraham, and gives him this prediction that from his seed, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. So that's just an extension. It's a furtherance of the plan of redemption that God hatched way back in Genesis 3.15. And really, uh, theologically speaking, before the world even began, it was decided amongst the Godhead that Jesus would come and give his life for the sins of mankind, God knowing that man would fall before he ever even created man. But, so you see the plan of God moving from Genesis 3.15 uh, to Genesis 12, and so the Jewish race came to be. And you came, went through Isaac and then Jacob, who gave birth to the 12 sons of Israel. And uh, so why were they selected? What was God's plan for them? Well, that they would be a testimony of the reality of the true uh, living God, the one God, the true creator God to all the earth. But even more than that, that through them would come the Messiah, who would be the bruiser of Satan's head, which means the one who would give him a death blow, divvy out to him a death blow, that this Messiah, this Redeemer, would would bring the end of him. So, therefore, it makes total sense that Satan would have a particular hostility, anger towards, and hatred of the race that brought forth his worst nightmare, who was Jesus, uh, the Messiah, who, when he died on the cross and spilled his blood for you and me, uh, the Bible says in Colossians and other places that he destroyed the devil. He, he, he took back from him the keys to death, hell and the grave. He made an open, uh, he, he openly triumphed over him and made a public display of him. And so no, no question as to why Satan has a particular antipathy for the Jewish people. You know, it's interesting that, um, you know, when you read, uh, Maria, the book of Romans, chapters 9, 10, and 11, you'll discover, first of all, in chapter 9, God's past dealing with the nation of Israel. Paul talks about it. In chapter 10, he talks about the present condition of the nation of Israel. And then when you move into chapter 11 of Romans, Paul talks about this future plan. You have to remember, God made an everlasting covenant with this nation. Even if they failed, God wouldn't fail his part of the covenant. And there is a purpose and plan that God has for the nation of Israel. And by the way, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is actually going to rule and reign from David's throne there in Jerusalem. So the, the reason why there's so much tension and so much um uh, going on there in that area is because that's where the Lord's going to rule and reign from. So the devil is certainly wanting to destroy the Jewish people. But the Bible also tells us that there is coming a day called the tribulation, seven years of tribulation. And the purpose of that, for one thing, is to judge a Christ-rejecting world. But the second reason for that tribulation period is to draw the Jewish people back to their Messiah. 
And that's something that the Bible reveals is going to unfold. So Satan has been opposed to that work and to those people since the very beginning, and he's not going to let up until the Lord's plan and fulfillment has all come to pass. So Mm -hmm. that's the reason why there's so much hatred toward those people. And I would say, listen, we need to stand with the Jewish people. We need to pray for them, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, pray for the peace in the Middle East, that God would work there. But we know that there's not really going to be peace until the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, comes again. I hope that helps helps you out, Maria. Yes, it did. Yeah, I forget the the yeah revelation. It's still not over with. So thank you so much. I appreciate your time. You are so welcome. Thank you so much for calling there in Bakersfield. Stay on the line. We'd love to send you out some materials that I think would be a tremendous encouragement uh, to you there. Hey, listen, if you haven't called in yet, you can still call. We've got some lines open. That's 8888-ASK-CSN. I'm here with Pastor Jeff Wickwire uh, from Turning Point Church. And so right now we're going to go out to John in Grand Junction, Colorado. John, welcome to, to Every Man and Answer. You're on the air. Yes, I'm here. Hey, uh, uh, I appreciate everything you guys do. Um, uh, I have a question about uh, John the Baptist. Uh, He preached repentance and baptism. And I was wondering, I'm curious to know if uh, John the Baptist was baptized and who baptized him? That's a great question. Uh, You know, Pastor Jeff, as you look at the scriptures and you go back to the gospel narrative, you read about John's birth, which was miraculous and how that came to be. And also the... um, purpose of John's existence, the calling that he had upon his life as the forerunner of the Messiah. But does it say in the Bible that John the Baptist was baptized by anybody? What what do we know about that? No, it doesn't say that he ever was. Hmm. Uh, he was the original baptizer. Uh, it says in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So uh, John's message was first and foremost, first word out of his mouth, was repent. And his whole calling was to prepare the way of the Lord Jesus. So people began to come from everywhere, uh, up and outers, down and outers, very important people and people who weren't known at all. They came to the Jordan from everywhere. And so John began to tell them, look, I'm not the Messiah. It's not me. He said, as a matter of fact, there's somebody coming after me whose uh, sandal uh, strap, I'm not worthy to latch. I'm not worthy to even put his sandals on his feet. Uh, and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John's whole purpose was to point towards the coming of Jesus. As a matter of fact, in another place, he said, uh, he must increase, speaking of Jesus, I must decrease. And he had no problem with that. He he knew that his calling was to simply blaze the trail uh, to prepare Israel for the coming of Christ, who also, first word out of Jesus' mouth, the first word that he spoke uh, was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So uh, they they worked in tandem with one another, but John uh, was not anywhere in the same league as Jesus, of course. Jesus was the only begotten Son of God. John the Baptist, born of an earthly father and mother, but Jesus said of him, There is not a greater prophet known to man than John the Baptist. So that was John's purpose, and he fulfilled it. But I don't think he ever, well, the Bible does not tell us he was ever baptized. And I don't think he baptized himself. So he was the one that just started it. And that's what we know about John. Yeah, it's interesting because John did say when Jesus came to the waters of the Jordan, he said, I should be baptized by you. And stopped him and said, no, John, it's fitting that we fulfill Mm -hmm. All righteousness. Uh, John, I hope that answers the question for you. 
Yes, it did. All right, brother. Well, thanks so much for calling out there in Grand Junction. Encourage you to stay on the line. Love to send you out uh, some materials, and I think you'd be encouraged by them. Really appreciate the call today. And you know, you know, Jeff, it, it brings up, a, and we're almost going to a break here in a moment, folks. But it does bring up a interesting point. You know, and you kind of alluded to it earlier in the program that when the Bible is silent and doesn't give us an, an answer. We we're silent. I mean, you can we can conjecture, we can think about certain things, and maybe mm-hmm. this, and maybe that, and we look at historical background and so forth. But you know, you kind of come to the, re- the realization if if it doesn't say it, then then we don't know. We can't say with absolute certainty. Yeah. But there's plenty of things in the Bible that are clear and obvious, and you could say with emphatically, this means this, and that means that. And um, but it's always those questions that that are really yeah. good questions, like John answered yeah. in the past, that you don't. Yeah always know, and the Bible kind of leaves you there uh, wondering. That's where we really get into some trouble when the Bible is silent. Mm-hmm. We say, well, you know what? I'm going to take a guess, and I'm just going to go ahead and teach it as if it's so. Right. And that's where you get into trouble. And I've, I've just learned as a teacher, and I'm, I know you have as a pastor, John, that you know if the Bible is silent, then if God didn't bother to tell me, then I'm not going to bother to make something up. Yeah, and, uh, I, I just, tend to tell. Yeah, I tend to tell people. Listen, I don't know this, but here's what I know for sure. I always say that this is what I know for sure. People yeah. say, "Who are the two witnesses?" I think they're these two guys. But here's what I know for sure: there are two of them. So that you can be clear. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and so, uh, what it yeah. says, it says. What it doesn't, it doesn't. That's A lot good. of the cults come out of that. You know, they true. make they just make things up. That's true. You know, folks, we are coming up on a break here. Uh, I can't believe how quickly this first half has gone by. But listen, if you have a question, we still have some lines open and you can call and be part of the program this next half hour at 8888-ASK-CSN, 8888-ASK-CSN. John Randall here from Calvary South OC in San Clemente, California, along with my friend, Pastor Jeff Wickwire out of Texas, Turning Point Church. And uh, we'd love to Take your questions and answer them. So stick around because in a few moments, we'll be right back with some more more uh, answers. And I want to say just one last thing before we go to break. You know, Pastor Jeff, I was thinking about, you know, when John the Baptist was down there baptizing, people often ask the question, well, why was Jesus baptized? What was the reason for Jesus coming down into the water? If he had no sin, then why would he go into the water of baptism surrounded by sinners? And I'm really curious— I'm just adding to John from Grand Junction, his question, mm-hmm. and I'd like to see what you have to say about, about that, why Jesus actually went into the waters of baptism himself if he was sinless. So folks, stick around, and Pastor uh, Jeff Wickwire is going to answer that question for us. We'll be right back. ultrasound and I saw this little lima bean looking thing with a halo. When this mom came to a preborn center, a baby wasn't really in her plans. And I got to hear the heartbeat and I got chills. In that moment, I just felt God's arms come around me and hug me and tell me that it was going to be okay. After hearing her baby's heartbeat and seeing her baby on ultrasound, this mom's plans changed. My choice to become a mom, hear those little footsteps running down the hallway every morning is all because I had an ultrasound. It saved my 
my life and hers. When an expected mother meets her baby on ultrasound, she is 80% more likely to choose life. Preborn's network of clinics are the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and have rescued over 270,000 babies. To learn how you can rescue a baby's life, go to preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Or call 855-668-BABY. That's 855-668-BABY. All gifts are tax deductible. If you haven't switched to MediShare yet, two big reasons to at least consider it and why it makes so much sense right now. Number one is inflation, which is just affecting everything. It just makes sense to say, okay, where can I actually save? Well, you can save a lot in one fell swoop if you switch to MediShare. The typical family saves $500 a month. Secondly, your conscience. MediShare members aren't forced to pay for things they don't support or believe in. And that's a big deal for a lot of people right now. They want their money to actually help people. And one more reason, you can trust MediShare. It's been the gold standard for healthcare sharing for more than 30 years. It works and members love it too. It has double the member satisfaction rating compared to health insurance. So now's a great time to consider making the switch and they are very easy to talk to. MediShare has great customer service. You can call now and get a price within two minutes. Here's the number. It's 855-91-BIBLE. That's 855-91-BIBLE. 855-91-BIBLE. Welcome back, everybody, to the Tuesday edition of To Every Man and Answer. I'm your host, John Randall, filling in for Pastor Mike Kessler. And joining me today on the program, Pastor Jeff Wickwire of Turning Point Church, Fort Worth, Texas, heard here on CSN on the Hardwired program. So glad to have you here with us, Jeff. You know, before we went to the break, uh, we had a question out of Grand Junction, and I kind of added to the question. It had to do with John the Baptist. And I asked you, why is it, and people have asked me this question, why did Jesus go into the waters of baptism with John if he was without sin? Yeah, because here's John preaching, you know, repent. And well, Jesus didn't need to repent of anything. Uh, He was without sin. So why did he go down to the water and do it? I think there's uh, two or three good reasons. I'll I'll throw out a couple. Um, John, let's remember, was the forerunner. He was the one who was to point to Jesus and say, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus going down to him and uh, being baptized by him gave John the opportunity to say, Behold, there's the Lamb of God. There he is right there. Look at him. Don't look at me. Look at him. There he is. So he, by allowing himself to be recognized by the forerunner only made sense because that's why John was raised up in the first place to point to him which is exactly what happened at the baptism. Then secondly, interestingly here, uh, John the Baptist was of the Levitical line. Both parents were of the Levitical priesthood. And uh, one of the priest's purposes in the Old Testament was to dedicate sacrifices to the Lord. And so John, in the Levitical line, uh, you know, baptizing Jesus was really kind of a way of him presenting the ultimate sacrifice to the Lord as a member of the Aaronic uh, priesthood. So there's that. And then finally, I think that Jesus going down was just Jesus uh, showing his uh, approval of John baptizing. He 
he put his seal of approval ultimately. You couldn't get a, a greater uh, seal of approval than Jesus himself going down and, and letting you baptize him. So it validated John like nothing else possibly could. So he didn't do it because he had any sin. He did it for reasons like that. And, of course, out of his own mouth, uh, it is right that we would fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus saw what he was doing as fulfilling Old Testament principle, fulfilling Old Testament truth uh, by going down to the water and, and submitting to that water baptism. Yeah, I appreciate that. Great, great response. Great answer. And, uh, you know, we've got some calls to get to here today, and we're going to go out to Tiffany in Wichita, Kansas. Uh, Tiffany, how can we help you today? God bless you. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks. Um, my question is, um, can a person be saved um, if they are transgender? Um, do they have to detransition? and go back to their original gender identity um, in order to be, you know, born again, um, would it be a sin for them to, you know, if they get saved, to continue living as transgender? And just um, to add on to that, I would just like to say I understand um, it's a sin. Homosexuality is a sin. And the problem with being transgender is that it undermines the definition of homosexuality um, but if that person were to remain single in order to avoid homosexuality, is it a sin for them to just simply use the pronouns um, and wear the clothes? Yeah, that's a really, that's a very loaded question. Uh, Tiffany, do you, is there somebody you thinking about specifically, you're bringing this up, or just like in general, as you look at the society, as you look at the community, you think, hey, this is something that's on my mind. Do you have somebody that, that you're, that's asking this question, or just something you're thinking about as you see all these things unfold in the culture? My son is 20 years old, and he's medically transitioned, and every pastor, I mean, he says he, he doesn't believe in God and doesn't want to go to church. Every pastor that I've talked to, they automatically yeah. assume that it is a sin. But my belief and my understanding is that the sin is actually committing sexual immorality. Um, and, and I just want to point out the thing that made me want to call is, you know, a few minutes ago you were saying, you know, if the Bible is silent on something, then we need to be silent. And it's dangerous to, you know, condemn people when we, we really don't have the scripture on this. And what about, you know, hermaphrodites, intersex people? I mean, to be quite honest with you, my son is intersex now because he had that surgery. Okay. And so I have pastors saying no pastor has ever said you can live as you feel comfortable. Um, and I, I think it's a mistake to assume that. Yeah. Okay. Well, I appreciate Thank you so much, first of all, for your call, Tiffany. And I also want to say thank you for your transparency and your honesty about the question. It's a fair question. It's a good question. And I do think the Bible does have answers concerning what you're asking. And I'm going to turn this over to Pastor Jeff in a moment. But I do want to say, you know, you want to go back to the very beginning, first of all, in Genesis, where it says that God created them male and female. That That's where it started. That was God's intention from the beginning. And um, so just keeping that in mind, but you know, Pastor Jeff, Tiffany, you know, this is very personal for her. You know, she has a son that's gone yeah. through this and, and this is something that, you know, she's concerned about her son and yeah. all of this. And she's heard other things. You know, as you look at this from a biblical perspective, uh, Pastor Jeff, what would you say to Tiffany? 
Yeah, um, I, I hear the pain in your voice, Tiffany, and I and I want you to know that I know it's. I can just tell by listening to you, you've been through a lot with this. This has been a great struggle in your home, and you you've battled with theological questions and stuff that would really rattle anybody's cage. So um, I want to be as delicate as I can, but as truthful as I can. Uh, first of all, the the verses that John quoted out of Genesis. Jesus requoted them in Matthew and uh, other uh, places in the Gospels, uh, that male and female created he them. People say today, well, gender is not your sexuality, and your sexuality is not your gender, but that is not what Scripture says. Male and female created he them. That is God, through the Holy Spirit, uh, through his servant Moses, writing that down. Uh, that is God making a clear distinction between a male and a female. Uh, God is being very, very clear. There's two genders, there's two sexes. Uh, yeah, there, there's every once in a blue moon, they're very, very rare, where somebody is born with both kinds of genitalia or uh, and genitalia that is ambiguous. But it's very rare. Uh, for the most part, the vast percentage of the human race, you're either born with male genitalia, female genitalia, and that decides your gender. Uh, there has been an incredible amount of confusion sewn into the culture by, in my opinion, very skewed thinking, very confusing thinking, that if you wake up one day, let's say you were born with male genitalia, but you believe you're a woman trapped in a male's body, and then you need to be uh, become a woman, and uh, be addressed with female pronouns and live that way. Now, let me just throw something out to you. Okay, first of all, the Bible says that when somebody comes to Christ, they are in new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. When they come to Christ, when I came to Christ, you came to Christ, John came to Christ, uh, you know, I was messed up in drugs and all kinds of things. I was a pretty freaky-looking dude. And uh, God came into my life through Christ, and I became a new creation. Paul goes on to say, the old is passed away, and all has become new. Now, with issues like this, you have to decide what is going to be the source of my truth. Where am I going to turn for truth? Am I going to listen to what the culture says is true, or am I going to let the Scriptures be my truth source? my undeniable, irrefutable, non-negotiable true source. That's where I stand. So, I can give you, for instance, I've known a few who were uh, born one gender and decided they were going to transition. Now, uh, I've interviewed one on the radio who actually did uh, get the operation where his uh, male genitalia were removed and he was you know, as best as surgeons could do it, made to be a woman. But when he got saved, even though he could not, uh, you know, retract, retrace his steps and undo what was done, he began to say, I'm not a woman, I'm a man. And the reason I say I'm a man is because that's what I was born to be. That's how I was born. That's what I was born with, and that's who I am. He died younger, um, 
But to the day that he went on to be with the Lord, he rejected this, I'm a woman, so call me a woman, and he called himself a man. I've known many, many situations like that. It seems to me that when you go the trans route and you get born again, the Bible clearly says the Holy Spirit is going to do a work, and it is a work based on truth. And the truth is that if you're born a man, that's what you are. If you're born a woman, that's what you are. And the ones that I've known have detransitioned. They have gone back. If they can't do it physically, they've gone back as far as their testimony spiritually. Now, I want to say one last thing, and then I'll hand it over to John. Um, when you say, address me with female pronouns, and I'm a male, but I want you to address me with female, you're asking that person to break the Eighth Commandment, which is not to bear false witness. If I call a male who now is claiming to be a female, if I'm forced to call them by female pronouns, then you're forcing me to break a commandment. And I have a real conscience issue as a Christian with that. Now, if you're the trans person and you're calling yourself something you're not, is that self-deception? Are you not being truthful with yourself? I believe the Bible's called, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. That's what Jesus called the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth. He will guide you into all truth. The Spirit of Truth is going to lead you into truth. And he's going to lead you into truthful statements and confessions. And I do believe one of the works of the Holy Spirit in a trans person, if they are, if they get saved and are filled with the Holy Spirit, is going to be, they're going to be dealing with themselves truthfully and not in a realm of deception. And John, I don't know where you are with this, but that's just a few of my thoughts. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> well, I appreciate the response. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate the response. And I think um, whether it is homosexuality, uh, lesbianism, transgenderism, I think these are all things that are being used in the culture to deceive a generation. And many people are getting swept up into it. And I do believe that it's not God's design uh, based upon Scripture. And either the Scriptures are the authority or they aren't. But I will say to you, Tiffany, it doesn't mean that we don't – we don't love you because we disagree with you. We do. And we will pray for you and for your son. I'm so, again, I'm so thankful that you were willing to, to put yourself out there and ask the question. Um, but it is important that we speak the truth in love and that God created your son from the beginning to be a man. And, um, you know, the culture comes in and, and, you know, the enemy is the father of all lies. And a lot of people are, are gravitating toward that and believing that. And we have a culture that, says, you know, that which is, is evil is good and that which is good is evil. And um, I will be praying for you. I'm so thankful that you called. Please stay on the line. We'd love to send you out some materials that I think will be an encouragement to you. And of course, the CSN family listening today also be praying for you, Tiffany, and your son. And um, we'll be lifting you up. Thanks again for, for the call. And thank you, Pastor Jeff, for that uh, amazing response. Let's go out to Brian in Washington. You know, Brian, appreciate your question today. You are on to Every Man and Answer. How can we help you today? Hi, I just had a, well, it's a very kind of a long or deep question. Just why why so many sincere Bible-believing Christians 
uh, follow the teachings of the Catholic Church. I mean, I, I, I love Catholic people. I've married. My first wife was a Catholic, and her whole family was loving Christians. Um, but if you look at what the papacy teaches, I mean, they, they put themselves above the Bible, Right. No, it's a really good question that you ask. You know, Pastor Jeff, you know, um, I've actually visited Rome. I've been to the Vatican. I've gone and uh, on a tour out there and seen a lot of things and was kind of, it was really eye-opening to me. Um, and, uh, you know, as you look at some of the, the teachings of Catholicism that are not centered on the Word of God, certain practices that that have been adapted by man and really become a part of the tradition of the church and, and you observe these things again, as, as Brian mentioned, it's not that we do not love, uh, people, but what do you say to people who, how do you feel about, uh, Catholicism in general and, and what is being taught by the church today, especially in recent days? You've seen, uh, even yeah. what the, the papacy has come out and said that they can bless homosexual unions now. Yeah. <laughs> Just, well, you know, you think of Martin Luther, uh, way back in the 16th century going and, attacking those 95 theses on the church door of Wittenberg, um, really protesting the sale of indulgences more than anything. But beyond that, you know, he, as a young man, went uh, very naive. He, he went to Rome and visited the the epicenter of the, of the Catholic Church and, you know, saw the Pope and got really uh, there right in the middle of what it was actually about. And he was extremely disenchanted. He stumbled over what he saw. Uh, he began to have grave questions about what was being taught. And of course, he, he launched the Protestant Reformation. Nothing has changed. You know, the worship of Mary, the thinking you can pray to Mary and she'll go to Jesus for you. You know, the rosaries, the belief in purgatory. There's just a million things they teach. And so I have to wonder, if you're a, a professing Christian and you're really genuinely reading your Bible, reading that New Testament particularly, and uh, seeing what, reading the epistles, what Paul wrote, and Peter, James, John, Jude, what, what Christ taught, and then how, if you really know that and familiarize yourself with it, and then you look at what the Catholic Church teaches, all these, these real fallacies, you know, these just wrong doctrines, how you don't see that and say, wow, this is not right. I have the same questions about Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, it doesn't take long. You go into the history of these uh, cultic movements and and find all kinds of things that should make you want to say, you know what, I'm in a wrong thing here. I need to get out. So, you know, Brian, I don't know the answer to that because if they were really reading their Bible. It seems to me they would catch some of these things and the Holy Spirit would either gradually or very quickly move them away from that and get them into a Bible teaching church. So all I can say is I think ignorance of the Bible would have to be one of the main reasons why they stay, as well as Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah, it's a good response. I think, you know, we go to the Word of God and we when we see things that are contradictory to Scripture— um, even Jesus contended with religious people in the Pharisees and the Sadducees who had held the traditions of men. He said that they held the traditions of men above the very word of God. And by doing so, he said they made the word of God of no effect 
in their life. And so it is important that uh, we look at what the Bible says. And if it contradicts uh, what man says, then we realize, well, God's word is true and we want to stay true to that. Brian, thank you so much for the call there in Washington. I encourage you to stay on the line. I'd love to send you out some materials and uh, that will be an encouragement to you. If you stay, stick around, the guys will love to send that out to you. Thanks again for calling. Let's go out to Stephen in Golden Valley, Arizona with a great question. Stephen, you're on to every man and answer. Hi, thanks for taking my call. So my question is in regards to uh, supposedly what was originally a book of the Bible being the book of Enoch. Um, there's a lot of information about it, and I'm, I can't really figure out what's right or wrong. Uh, my question is, was it originally part of the Bible? And if so, why was it removed? Yeah, it's a really great question. Let me ask you a question real quick. Hey, have you ever read the, the Apocrypha at all, uh, Stephen? You ever you ever read any of that? No, I have not. Okay. Uh, you know, Pastor Jeff, you know, you see that some Bibles, and we're just talking about Roman Catholicism, have, it seems like, hey, this Bible seems bigger than the one I got. How come, yeah. how come there's more books at the end? The apocryphal books, are those part of the canon? Are those part of the inspired Word of God? Or, or what are those exactly? No, they're, they're not. And just for the record, Enoch is not in the Apocrypha. Uh, the book of Enoch, both, both the Apocrypha and Enoch were written in the intertestamental period. Um, somewhere around, uh, 400 to, uh, well, the intertestamental period after Malachi closed and before the New Testament opened, there was a long stretch of time, um, 400 years of prophetic silence. And, uh, so during those 400 years, the Apocrypha and Enoch were composed. Now, uh, the Apocrypha itself, it's included in the Catholic Bible, uh, but it's never been uh, accepted as inspired. Uh, no council has ever declared it inspired. Uh, Jesus, the, the uh, apostles in the epistles, they never quoted from the book of uh, any apocryphal book. So it's not mentioned, even though it had been around when Jesus was born, it had been around for quite some time. And uh, surely somebody like Paul, as knowledgeable as he was, no doubt knew about it, but he never quoted it. None of the apostles quoted it. Jesus didn't quote it. Uh, it's never been considered inspired. The Catholic Church, here again, you know, making a move, a theological move, uh, by including the Apocrypha in their Bible, uh, they are just not recognizing that it's not inspired. If you read any of the Apocrypha, you feel like you're reading a comic book off of a comic book shelf. It's, it's just mythology. It's, now I will say that some of it, uh, is decent for history. Uh, it, it'll give you some good, the Maccabees, for instance, uh, one and two Maccabees is, is, uh, gives some good historical accounts, uh, uh, that are true and they're valid and, and they, they have some historical worth. But as far as theology, telling the truth about God, agreeing with what is inspired text, uh, they don't. Now, the book of Enoch, uh, clearly was not written by Enoch, who, uh, came way back from the dawn of time. Enoch um, was, of course, uh, the first raptured man. He walked with God, and he was not. But he was in uh, the righteous lineage. He lived way back, not long, not very far removed from Adam. And uh, so he couldn't have written the book of Enoch. So right off the bat, the author of Enoch is lying to you, telling you that uh, Enoch wrote it. And Enoch itself is full of you know, so much of what we hear, John, these days about the Nephilim, 
and uh, you know, fallen angels uh, copulating with earthly women and uh, producing hybrid human beings and all of this. When you when you read people or listen to people that teach that, invariably they quote the book of Enoch, which is not inspired. So that's a, in a nutshell, Stephen. Uh, the difference: the apocrypha is not inspired. Enoch not a part of the apocrypha, but it's also not inspired in any way, shape, or form. I don't believe Jude quoted Enoch, the book of Enoch. What Jude said about the Lord your God will come and thousands uh, of saints with him, and he he quotes Enoch or he uses or references the name of Enoch, I believe Jude is simply moving out of divine inspiration and telling us that something that the real Anna, Enoch, prophesied. I don't think he was quoting from the book at all. John? Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, I would say, too, um, it's a really good question, Stephen. You can go even a little bit deeper on this subject concerning the canon of Scripture. I think this is a good thing for uh, for people to, to dive into. How did we get our Bible? How did we arrive at the Old Testament Scripture? How did we, you know, verify and give a standard in the canon of Scripture for, for the New Testament and a great resource, and there are several out there, but one is the Canon of Scripture by F.F. F. Bruce. You know, you might pick up that book and kind of go a little bit deeper, and um, I think you'll get a better understanding. But there's a reason why the Apocrypha wasn't considered part of the Canon, and that is because there were certain criteria to make a book divine and make it a part of the Canon of Scripture, and the Apocrypha fell far short of that. And so um, it's a great question. Appreciate you asking. If you stay on the line, we'd love to send you out some some books, maybe some DVDs, some materials that would be a help to you. But uh, check that out. Thanks again for the question. Man, we are coming down to two minutes. Bill, this is a quick one uh, out there in New Mexico. Bill, welcome to Man and Answer. Yes. Hello. Um, just real quick, I just had a question about in, I believe it's Leviticus, where uh, God talks about how to treat slaves. And uh, if a slave is killed by his master, you know, the consequence versus if he recovers, and why not just condemn slavery altogether at that point? That's a really good question. Pastor Jeff Rickwire, I'm so glad you're here. In one minute, mm-hmm. tell us why and what that means. <laughs> well, you find that uh, the, the slavery talked about in the Old Testament is nothing like uh, Southern uh, 19th century, 18th century antebellum slavery. Uh Many times the slaves were brought into a family to pay off a debt. Mm-hmm. They were treated like a family member. As a matter of fact, if, and they were given a certain time to pay off that debt. And if they reached the end of that time and they had become so knitted to the family that they did not want to leave, then they were received as a member of the family from that moment on. And uh, so there was a compassionate, merciful uh angle to Old Testament slavery that we don't find in Southern slavery at all. It's a very, very different animal. Uh, That's right. Well, there's more to be said on that. Bill, thanks so much for calling. Carol, call back tomorrow. We'd love to get to you. Guys, God bless you. Thanks for listening to Every Man and Answer. And Pastor Jeff, thanks for being here today. Thank you, John. Look forward to you tomorrow, brother. God bless you. To find out more about this ministry or to receive a copy of today's program, please call 1-800-357-4226 or write us to Every Man and Answer, P.O. Box 391, Twin Falls, Idaho, 83303. That toll-free number is 1-800-357-4226. 
Subscribe to the free podcast on iTunes by searching for To Every Man and Answer in the iTunes store or visit us online at csnradio.com slash T-E-M-A. To Every Man and Answer is a production of CSN International, the Christian Satellite Network. The opinions expressed by our guests may or may not be those of CSN International or of this station. CSN International. From the Pacific Justice Institute, this is The Legal Edge. Defending your rights as a Christian, a parent, and a citizen. Here's Brad Davis. Pro-life pregnancy resource centers all across the country provide compassionate care to women who find themselves in unexpected pregnancies. Well, pregnancy resource centers offer prenatal care and alternatives to abortion, like foster care and adoption. Well, for the last two decades... Pacific Justice Institute has actively defended multiple pro-life clinics across government hostilities and assaults. We at PJI urge you to proactively protect your local pro-life clinic by visiting pji.org. Learn more about our ministry and get exclusive email updates by registering for The Legal Insider at pji.org. Remember the website, pji.org. From Love Worth Finding Ministries, here's pastor, teacher, and author, Dr. Adrian Rogers, with a treasure from the Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 4, But I would have you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, what's he talking about here? He's not talking about superiority or inferiority. He is talking here about headship. I think the great analogy that I like to use about this is the analogy of football. I played football. I was a quarterback. Quarterback calls the plays. Now, does that mean the quarterback was the best player on the team? I certainly wasn't. We had a boy on our team who was an incredible athlete. His name was Ned. He was a fullback, but he wasn't a quarterback. Ned did not call the plays. What I'm trying to say is this, folks. Listen to me. Somebody's got to call the plays. Any team can't run two plays at one time. Agree? I mean, you could, but it wouldn't work. You've got to have somebody call the play. If a quarterback calls a good play and you score a touchdown, the team gets cheered for. If it's a bad play, the quarterback gets blamed. Now, I can hand the ball off to a fullback, but it's still my responsibility if I'm the quarterback to call the play. It doesn't mean that I am superior. It just simply means that God has ordained in a family that there be headship. For more about Love Worth Finding and Adrian Rogers, visit our website at lwf.org.
This is KAWZ Twin Falls, the Christian Satellite Network.